You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Mananan, Craig, Kenway, Toves, Two Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. Where does one draw the line between a subject of a monarchy who happens to live in a colony and an independent citizen of a state that owes its allegiance to a foreign monarch? That's a relatively simple question when you're talking about a subjugated people the Belgian Congo, or French Indochina, or British India. There are ethnic and cultural and economic and linguistic distinctions between the colonists and the colonized there. But what about in America? Not just the U.S., but the entirety of the Americas, where a large part of the local indigenous people were either killed or chased off, and most of the people living within the colony were imports from the homeland. Where do we draw the line between a British colonist in America and an American? Or a Spanish colonist in Mexico and a Mexican? I mean, was George Washington British until July 4th, 1776? Well, technically, yeah, but that's not really the whole story, is it? I heard a discussion on the radio recently that informs that question. It was about the people of Latin America, and what is the proper thing to call them, specifically surrounding the word Hispanic. Many people dislike that term, considering their colonial history with Spain, or Hispania. And I, being the essentially self-centered person that I am, applied that to my own experience. I thought about how I would feel if someone called me, or one of my fellow Americans, Britannic. You know, I'd probably tell them to go to hell. Not because I hate the British or anything. I like Doctor Who and Monty Python and Lord of the Rings. But I like Ron Swanson, too, and I'm decidedly not British. So, you know, I kind of get it. Generally speaking, in that case, the preferred nomenclature these days is Latin American, Latino or Latina. So where is that line drawn between Spanish and Mexican? Is it with the Revolution? Or were those revolutions, the Spanish and American and many others on this hemisphere, were they merely a symptom of a change that had already taken place in the colonial holdings of imperial Europe? 
This question is particularly relevant when it comes to the Spanish characters we introduced last time and one character we danced around. However, today we're not really going to continue with their story. We're not going to talk about that until next time. Instead, we need to introduce a couple of ideas. Ideas relevant to our current story of the Signet and their Spanish captives, but they're bigger than that. They're ideas that involve our entire story of pirates and piracy. They're going to become even more important as we move on. And those ideas are going to raise questions of loyalty and nationality and betrayal. And I think they're going to muddy the waters when questions of guilt arise, perhaps not in a court of law, but in the hearts and minds of the pirates themselves. This is episode 134, The Hydrarchy. Those ideas are immediately applicable to our story, so I want to begin where we left off last time. The crew of the Signet, after a three-hour sea battle, captured the Spanish-Philippine frigate Aranzazu. The Aranzazu was the third capture of the Signet on the 4th of March, 1687. Their first was a sampan, a smallish boat, owned by Don Francisco Arsaga, carrying a modest amount of valuable cargo. Arsaga, his family, his manservant, and the sailors on board were all captive aboard the Signet. The second prize taken was a bark that carried maybe fifty sailors and was hauling rice and cotton. That crew was currently held captive aboard their own bark, guarded by a skeleton crew of pirates. The third, and by far the most relevant, was the Aranzazu. That ship and her crew are so interesting because, well, in part because of what we're going to talk about today, but also because some members of her crew will wind up wrecked on the coast of the Yucatan, carrying pirated English cargo, and one of them will write a document about his experience. In the immediate aftermath of the capture of Aranzazu, the English pirates set about bringing all of their captives over to the Signet. Now, remember, Signet wasn't a large ship. It could comfortably carry a crew of around a hundred sailors, and currently had a crew that was nearing that number, but adding somewhere in the range of eighty prisoners was beginning to push it a bit. And I wonder what something like that might look like. We can imagine that Don Francisco and his family were currently locked in, maybe, in John Reed's cabin. It certainly would have been the most comfortable accommodations and secure, and the family said that they were treated well on board the pirate vessel. From there, we can picture the officers of the Signet. They were standing on the poop deck and forecastle, the fore and aft of the ship, that would have elevated them above their captives. The rail would be guarded by stern-eyed pirates, and the deck would be filled with sitting or kneeling Spanish sailors, some of them bloody, many of them with their hands bound. And all of them, I imagine, would be warily eyeing the many, many muskets that were pointed in their direction. That is, at least, when they weren't focused on the quarter-deck, where all of the action would have been focused here. The quarter-deck, sitting below the poop-deck but above the main-deck, was usually the home of the mainmast, and that spot on most ships in the Age of Sail held a kind of fearful reverence in the minds of many sailors. 
It was that mast that held the sails to catch the wind and carry them to their destination. But it was also the sight of many a punishment on a king's ship or a merchantman. When a sailor stood before the officers of a ship to be judged, he stood before the mast. And today, that was where judgment would be reached as well, before the mast of the pirate ship Signet. But as I said, we're going to hold off on talking about that, because we need to talk about those concepts I mentioned earlier to understand what's to come. I'm trying to tell the story of piracy in as linear a fashion as possible, to showcase the evolution of pirates and pirate life, as well as many of the greater cultural shifts that are taking place here. Thus far, that's been relatively simple. We've been talking during the Buccaneer era mostly about privateers, state-sanctioned pirates that adhered to certain norms within the naval traditions of Europe. And we've seen some glimmers of the coming revolution, many of them quite bright glimmers. We've got the institution of ship's codes on buccaneer vessels in the Brethren of the Coast. But today we need to look at another pirate tradition, a cherished tradition that will come to define and represent the terror of Europe and the dread of nearly every ship's officer in the world. The distribution of justice. The distribution of justice walks hand in hand with another less solid but even perhaps more important concept, and that's the hierarchy. The original definition of hierarchy before it was appropriated by pirates was simply the organized system of customs and laws, both written and unwritten, that governed the life of men at sea. It's kind of always existed in one form or another ever since human beings began sailing. There were codes of conduct and superstitions and almost a distinct language among sailors. And, you know, sailors are a different breed than the rest of us. A little dirty and a little romantic. But think about what that would mean in the age of sail. The 17th through 19th centuries or so. I mean, look at the five largest powers in the age of sail. England, France, Spain, Portugal, and the Netherlands. None of them were large countries. However, they expanded into these global empires that spanned every continent on the globe. And they did so almost exclusively through sea power. For example, in 1629, English vessels shipped 115,000 tons of cargo. Less than 50 years later, by the time of our story in 1686, they had tripled that number to around 350 tons annually. Think about what that would take. Materials in untold quantities. Iron, bronze, timber, pitch, cotton. Think about the mobilization towards skilled manufacturing to turn those materials into barrels and guns and gunpowder, into ships. And then, think about what it would take to sail them. That was an army of people on the ocean for any nation. And I'm not talking about Alexander's forces here. I'm talking about Napoleon's nation at war, on the sea. Tens of thousands of sailors for any given nation, hundreds of thousands of sailors all told. And that took time. It didn't happen overnight. It took generations, in fact. England or Portugal or the Netherlands was far too small to field that many sailors at once. 
You had to found colonies and wait for the people there to produce a new generation of seamen before you could mobilize the tens of thousands of mariners necessary to rule the world. And these mariners were extremely skilled people in a variety of different trades. Obviously the sailing, but they were, at the same time, merchants and smiths and carpenters and seamstresses and ambassadors and soldiers. These hundreds of thousands of sailors were the backbone of the early modern world, for decades, for centuries even. And yet, while they may have pledged their allegiance to England or Spain or wherever they came from, they were all citizens of a different nation. They adhered to certain social norms of their home country, but they also adhered to the customs of the sea, to their superstitions and their codes of conduct the hydrarchy. Let's look for a second at the very word hydrarchy. It's a fusion of Greek words, hydro, Greek for water, and archy, for a system of rule. It's the same construction of a word like monarchy, the rule of one, or anarchy, the absence of rule. A hydrarchy is a civilization of people ruled by the sea. That word was coined in English in a pamphlet by a parliamentarian in the run-up to the English Civil War. His name was Richard Braithwaite, and he was a condescending, upper-class aristocrat. He said of English sailors at the time, quote, Stars cannot be more faithful in their society than these mariners are in their fraternity. They will relate their adventures with wonderful terror. Necessary instruments are they, and instruments of a main importance in that hierarchy wherein they live, for the state could not subsist without them. End quote. But what Braithwaite was saying there, while it sounds very much like praise, and it almost is, well, when he mentions their fraternity, he's talking about their kinship with one another, not necessarily their adherence to England. He viewed these sailors as important tools, sure, but unseemly, filthy, barbarous, and uncouth tools, the opposite of his Cromwellian Puritan ideals. A necessary evil, perhaps, but one that had to be reined in. Braithwaite's proposal, and the idea of many in the Cromwellian regime, was going to be to mold these sailors, mold the hierarchy from the top down, to impose a new, civilized, and righteous hierarchy from above. This was incredibly stupid. Do you recall the Puritan Pirates of the Providence Company back in 1631? No drinking, no sex, no gambling, no singing. The boring pirates. Remember how they all died horribly? That's a reasonable example of the Puritan attempt to institute a new hierarchy, and it failed terribly. But the basic premise there, the idea of reining in the baser instincts of the sailing class and reaffirming their allegiance to the home country, marched on, not just in England, but all across Europe. All of the horrors that we know from royal ships and merchant vessels stems from that very idea, a need to control the backbone of old Europe. And we've seen the blowback from that time and time again. It's the subject of this show, really. 
However, the reaction to Cromwellian and Stuart naval practices in regard to the Hydrarchy podcast doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. But what was the hydrarchy? Unfortunately, really specific definitions are harder to pin down, and they changed over time. We could look at the pseudo-religious beliefs of many a sailor in the Age of Sail. For example, they had the belief that one should never kill an albatross, which of course was broken in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. There are proverbs such as, Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Sometimes considered a bit of wild sailor superstition, but it does actually have some basis in meteorological fact, and was pretty reliable, still is in fact. There was, for example, the practice that Alexander Exquimelin described in the Buccaneers of America's first chapter, when he talks about sailors who had never crossed the Tropic of Cancer, or the Tropic of Capricorn, or one or another landmark that was important to sailors at the time, and how they had to undergo a sort of a baptism. Not a religious baptism, although it did have many of the forms of a traditionally religious baptism. It was a baptism of the sea, and oftentimes they were dunked into the sea. There were superstitions around St. Elmo's fire. There was a widespread belief in mermaids, and those had no real basis in reality. But then there was something like the belief that cats brought good luck to a ship. And that's just good sense. Cats ate rats, and rats carried plague and ate your food and were a menace. So you wanted to ensure that your ship would have cats on board. Of course, on the other hand, a ship entirely without rats was likely cursed as well. There were superstitions about singing or whistling into the wind, there were superstitions about women on board and Friday the 13th and an untold number of other practices that sailors across the world, even if they didn't really believe, they still adhered to. You know, I don't think that knocking on wood actually does me any good, but I do it all the same. Which by no means amounted to a dogmatic doctrinal religion, but it was something that many sailors took very seriously. And then there were rules, rules about how to treat other people on the sea, regardless of nationality or allegiance. 
how you should, maybe not if you were at war, but in general, pick up or tow stranded sailors. How if you saw a ship that was becalmed, you should make sure that no one was starving as long as your own ship had enough to spare. And that leads to all of the pseudo-governmental stuff, the almost democratic way of making decisions on board, their ways within the crew of dealing with theft or of breaking the rules or of incompetence, not quite laws, the laws were handed down from above by the officers, but customs that were strictly adhered to. And the further away one got from home, the more those customs were adhered to. The proper hierarchy, not the Puritan Cromwellian version, but the actual rule of the sea, flourished in parts of the world that were far removed from the halls of power. For example, the West Indies, Jamaica, Tortuga, places where the buccaneers invented their own codes of conduct, but really they weren't inventing new codes of conduct, they were merely codifying the hierarchy as each ship's crew saw fit. However, once they began to take it even more seriously, sometimes to write down their codes of conduct, and when they began to vote on them, and see them not as a loose affiliation of ideas, but as a way of life, that's when the hierarchy began to become a real threat to the kings and princes and popes of the old world. And that's not an image that we're often given of what pirates are, a society of rules and beliefs. That's not sleek or handsome or sexy or exciting. It's not men with pencil-thin mustaches fencing like prep school elites, nor is it whatever Johnny Depp was doing. Instead, it's revolutionary. And it might not have the high-minded philosophy of later revolutionary movements, but it's got a lot more dangerous ideas than what we might consider familiar European peasant revolts. Think about that scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, in which King Arthur comes across a peasant who informs the king that Arthur is not his king. He didn't vote for him. He's a member of an anarcho-syndicalist commune. And that's a great scene. Aside from the spectacular dialogue, it's funny because those ideas didn't exist in Arthurian England. But of course, peasants did revolt from time to time. Those revolts were usually ended quickly by a bunch of knights riding out from the castle and brutally murdering everyone involved. But what happens when the revolting peasants had the same tools as the lords and knights that would have put them down? When they had ships that were faster and often better armed, that gave their revolts room to breathe and time to fester? Their ideas could evolve and take root, and they could become fully realized norms to which all of the pirates adhered. In fact, those ideas, some of their norms, became part of the very definition of what a pirate was. Which brings us to the most loved and most feared and perhaps the most iconic practice of all the pirates, the distribution of justice. Now how widespread this practice actually was in the late 17th century is disputed. It was a time of changing norms and may not have been as prominent as it would later become under, say, the Nassau pirates. But it did happen, quite often. It happened on March 4th, 1687, on board the Signet. 
What it is is simple. When a crew of pirates captured a ship, they would take everyone on board prisoner. And then they would ask the expected questions of their prisoners. You know, who are you? Where are you going? Do you have any rum? Do you have any gold? Do you have any information that might lead us to rum and or gold? But then they came round to the distribution of justice, and that took a bit longer. The officers had probably already been identified and were probably already tied to the mast or in the brig or in shackles. Were you one of the regular crew members, one or another of these pirates would take you aside and interrogate you. But don't picture a good cop, bad cop routine. This was a good cop routine. The pirate was ingratiating himself with you. He wanted true answers. The pirate might ask you to identify the officers, but that would be solely for verification and maybe to see if you were telling the truth, to see if perhaps you were the sort of person who would lie to protect one of your friends in the officer corps. Then the pirate would ask about your treatment at the hand of the officers and about life aboard the ship. Were the officers cruel? Were they stupid? Did they beat you often? And if they did, for what kind of offense? Did you get enough to eat on board? What about your wages? And then finally, would you like to keep sailing with those officers, or would you like to come with us? If the crew gave answers that pleased the pirates, if they were not beaten for frivolous offenses, if they were given enough to eat, if they were paid fair wages, then they would often just let the ship go. Perhaps a little lighter of cargo, but that's the price of doing business with pirates around. But if the captain was fair and just, he could keep his life, he could keep his command, he could keep his ship, and usually his crew. If one or another of the crew members, a competent crew member, wanted to go with the pirates, they were usually taken, or if the pirates needed a carpenter or a cook or a surgeon, they might kidnap that officer. But in most cases, if the crew wanted to sail with their commander, they were allowed to continue doing so. But on the other hand, if the answers that the crew gave were less pleasing to the pirates... That's when the pirates, and the crewmen who had made the complaint, that's when they got to have some fun. Maybe the captain was a little too free with the cat nine tails. Perhaps he took a bit too much pleasure in binding a man to the mast and thrashing him, sometimes until blood streamed onto the deck and the man passed out or even died. Or maybe the captain was in the habit of garnishing wages or rations for minor infractions, if the crew looked malnourished or showed signs of scurvy, at least while the officers looked hale and healthy, or if crewmen alleged that they had been given the worst jobs in a fashion that the crew deemed to be unfair, then the officers were judged. Now we may be tempted to picture the goriest and most horrific punishments imaginable, real eye-for-an-eye kind of vengeance, maybe literally you know, taking someone's eye out, torture and murder while surrounded by cackling red-eyed pirates. After all, I mean, look at the aftermath of the French Revolution during the Terror, or look at the early Soviet Union. Revolutionaries are rarely kind to their oppressors. 
And deep down, I think we all kind of get that, right? Our delicate modern sensibilities might wince at some of the brutality. We might cover our eyes. But you would definitely peek, wouldn't you? And pirates are some of the most feared villains in all of world history, so it must have been truly terrible. Just clutch your pearls here. But the distribution of justice often looked a lot more like justice. It could be harsh, to be sure, but it was a harsh time. However, it was usually fair. And I'll admit that I'm indulging in a wee bit of generalization here. I mean, not all crews were created equal. Some relished the chance to murder any ship's officer and took that chance as often as possible. But most pirate crews were regular humans. They may have had grievances, but they didn't want to see innocent people punished unnecessarily. So when they distributed justice, they tried to do it fairly. The pirates usually only punished those who they saw as deserving of it. For example, they wouldn't punish all of the officers for the sins of a few. They would exact justice on those who, according to the crew, really deserved it. However, the captains often fared poorly in this situation. Captains were usually seen as responsible for the actions of their officers, and even if they didn't indulge in, say, ordering whippings or doing them themselves, they often shared in the retribution. It was in the end their responsibility. And the punishments were not all horrific torture followed by slow death. They could be, absolutely. For the officers guilty of the worst infractions, they might turn to something like keel-hauling, in case you're unfamiliar, you should listen to our episode on torture, or I'll give a brief rendition of what it is. Imagine being bound, your hands together and your feet together, and then having those bindings tied to a very long rope that is wrapped around the ship. And then the crew pulls the rope taut with you as the linchpin around the ship and begins to pull. You are dragged over the side and down into the water, perhaps your back against the hull of the vessel, dragging against all of the barnacles and rough wood and splinters. They begin to cut into your back, all the while you are holding your breath, trying not to scream as gashes begin to be filled with salt water. It was a truly terrible type of punishment. However, it took a lot of work and a lot of time, and pirates would rarely employ this unless you had been judged deserving of it. Men were certainly executed in various fashions for different infractions, but for lesser crimes they might receive only a lashing. It could be a truly brutal lashing. You might receive, if you were a particularly bad captain or officer, ten or fifteen lashes from every crewman who clearly remembered all of the strokes that they had received at the officer's hand. And they might die, but they might live. And if the crew decided that they were not worthy of death, they might give him a reprieve. The pirates might oversee the taking of an eye or a finger or a leg, especially if one of their actions had led to a crewman's loss of a corresponding appendage. Other times, an officer, or an entire officer corps, were they all guilty, might be marooned. And arguably, that is torture and a slow death, but they might be saved. Much more common, though, 
perhaps the most common punishment meted out in the distribution of justice, was shame. Imagine that you were a middle-class English merchant in Port Royal, say, or maybe you're an upper-class lady in India, or maybe you're a French farmer who has made his way into town for the weekend. But you're down at the docks, and you hear a ruckus near the water. You turn to see what all the trouble is when you spot what everybody is looking at, a small boat approaching the wharf. And then on board you see quite a sight, maybe a dozen men, all of them completely nude and terribly sunburned, except their faces because their heads are guarded by their very, very fine officers' hats. However, that is the only protection they have from the elements. They're rowing as hard as they can, but they look weak and tired. But then you recognize them. Those are the officers from the Royal Adventurer or whatever. Officers who marched around town weeks before, all self-importance and bravado and arrogance, but look at them now. Imagine those sunburned, completely nude officers climbing ashore, trying to hide their nakedness, until, finally, a unit of guards comes rushing down with sailcloth, maybe, to cover them up and to usher them as quickly as possible into the fort. There might be some sympathy, but there might also be some laughter. And, of course, that would be all hushed up in polite society, but the taverns in town would be roaring with the tale of these posh fops bested by the likes of Ed Teach or Black Bart Roberts for weeks. In fact, speaking of Black Bart Roberts, he had an official dispenser of justice on board, a crew member named George Wilson, who was chosen as a sort of judge for the crews they captured. George Wilson personally decided guilt and punishment, although it was usually given out by the crew. Imagine what you would think if you were the captain of a merchant vessel, say, making a run to the West Indies in 1718. You would be fully aware of this practice. You may have, as a crewman, seen the distribution of justice when pirates captured a vessel you were working on. How would you treat your crew? Even if it's very unlikely, with the possible threat of torture and murder at the hands of a buccaneer crew hanging over your head, wouldn't you think twice before ordering one of your crewmen lashed? Wouldn't you try to ensure that justice was actually carried out on your vessel rather than harsh, unduly harsh punishment? There is a question as to whether the pirates had the right to distribute justice. I mean, what gives them the right to do so? They certainly weren't ordained by God or any state power. They weren't ordained by any sort of democratic mandate of the people. They were villains of all nations. They had no right to do so. But they took that right. Because they lived in a time when the regular people had no rights either. If they were to take them from those in power, they had to do so by force, which is exactly what the pirates did. Now, whether they were morally justified in doing so, well, that's a question we will all have to answer in our own hearts, but for my money, I'm tempted to say yes, but I can't across the board. As I said, there were pirates who tortured and murdered officers without actually dispensing justice. 
What they were after was revenge. There were others who arguably just enjoyed watching them hurt. And on that level, the hierarchy begins to break down. Those customs and norms that had been adhered to for generations began to fall apart among the pirates. They began to build their own hierarchy, their own pseudo-governmental structure that was so outside the norms of anything in the civilized world that it began to look very unlike civilization indeed. Moving forward, we will occasionally talk about the distribution of justice, if it's particularly interesting or particularly relevant for some reason. But even when we don't, we need to remember that from here on out, it happens almost every time that a ship is captured by a pirate crew, when they capture the Widow or the Ganji Sawai, or any of an untold number of unnamed cotton or sugar ships, the pirates judged and distributed justice upon those who they had captured. Next time, we're going to take an in-depth look at our first distribution of justice, as it took place on board the Signet on the 4th of March, 1687. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everyone who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, those of you who have signed up to support the show financially through the website, those of you who have left a rating or a review wherever it is you listen to the show, and everyone who has recommended this show online or in real life. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight